the book of John, chapter 2. It's on page 751, if you're using the Bible in the seat back in front of you. Page 751, John, chapter 2, starting in verse 13. On Tuesday, um, a few men were here uh, in the morning, and they were tearing carpets out of the two classrooms, and they were cleaning up some of the mess. And, and as we were doing that, Stan Schuster said, you know, I've come to the conclusion that building something new from scratch is a lot easier than trying to renovate something that's already there. Some of you already knew that. Um, but wouldn't you agree, all the dust, all the mess, all the, the obstructions and the interruptions, well, aren't you glad that God chose to deal with this world by renovating it rather than just bulldozing the whole thing and starting over? And as we continue in, in John's gospel this morning, and as we follow the life and the mission of Jesus over the next few months, as we're in John's gospel, we're going to see Jesus roll up his sleeves and get involved in the mess and the hassle of this renovation for planet Earth, for the people who live here. And that begins in earnest in today's story. Here we see a different side of Jesus than the side we saw last week, if you were here last Sunday morning. Last week, Jesus was fun. This week, Jesus is fierce. Last week, Jesus made wine. Today, in this scripture, Jesus makes a whip. Do you know both sides of Jesus? If you don't, then you don't know the real Jesus. Because like all of us, Jesus isn't just a one-dimensional cardboard cutout. Jesus is, is a real, complex, multifaceted person. And while some of us might be all fun and others of us might be all fierce because we're strong in one area and we're quite weak in another. Jesus isn't like that. Jesus is, is a perfectly whole human being. He's, he's fully balanced. He's, he's wholly integrated and mature as a person. He knows when to kick back and have a party and, and he knows when to get intense and to courageously confront what's wrong. Last Sunday, we saw that Jesus has come to bring us something utterly new, that Jesus shows up on the seventh day at a, at a wedding feast that's run out of wine, and he takes six water jars for ceremonial washing, for religious purity rituals, and he transforms them into choice wine. And John tells us that that act is a sign, that it points not only to Jesus' miraculous power to turn water into wine, but, but it also points to Jesus' reason for coming, to, to bring joy and delight and satisfaction and celebration, to, to throw a party, to, to be our bridegroom, to invite us back into relationship with God, a relationship which brings us life, a relationship which gladdens our hearts so that we can taste and see that the Lord is good. Those six water jars had served their purpose. They'd provided for religious cleansing and for purity, uh, and they were helpful for a time. But, but now in Jesus, we saw last week, God is doing a new thing. He's bringing new life. He's bringing a new age, a new work, brimming with delight and satisfaction and fun and celebration. So we saw all that last Sunday, right in the first half of chapter 2. But now in today's story, the very next thing that Jesus does, we learn that this, um, this new work, this new wine is not going to come so easily. 
there is opposition. There are barriers. There is struggle, just like with any renovation. It's not as easy as replacing the old with the new because, because the religion that's already there isn't going to just passively sit there like water in water jars and get turned into wine. No, there's going to be mess. There's, there's going to be friction. There, there's going to be pushback. Whenever God moves, there's always opposition. And the sad truth is often that opposition comes from those who are the most religious. Because us church folk are the ones who, who have the most invested in this whole God thing. And, and so if you're, you've, you're honest, then you probably have asked the question that um, the novel writer Dostoevsky puts in the mouth of the Grand Inquisitor in his uh, famous novel, The Brothers Karamazov. Jesus, why have you come to disturb us? Has Jesus ever disturbed your plans, your beliefs, your life, your dreams? Has he disturbed your Bible study or your church? And how did you feel about it? So let's ask ourselves honestly, do you, do I prefer a Jesus who comes gentle and mild and never disturbs us? Or do we prefer the Jesus who actually is? Today's story challenges us to wrestle through that question. Let's take a closer look at the story now. John has told us that the very first miraculous sign that Jesus performed was to turn water into choice wine at a wedding in the village of Cana. And the next thing John tells us is that at Passover time, Jesus goes up to Jerusalem where he cleanses the temple. Now, if you've read the other three Gospels, then this sequence surprises you, right? I mean, the, the other three Gospels place Jesus' Passover cleansing of the temple um, near the end of Jesus' ministry, just a few days before his crucifixion. But here John places it three years earlier at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. What's going on here? Well, Bible students have recognized that there's three possible solutions to this puzzle. One is that the other three gospel writers place the, uh, Jesus' cleansing of the temple in its actual historical sequence, and that John has moved this story to the beginning of Jesus' ministry to make a theological point. And this is perfectly possible, because the gospel writers are um, not writing straight history here. They're, they're rather selecting, and they're arranging of all the different things they could tell us about Jesus. They're... Um, selecting and arranging certain real historical events from Jesus' life in a way which best communicates the theological points that they want to communicate in a limited amount of pages. The second option is just the reverse of the first, and that's that John has this story in its actual historical sequence, and the other three gospel writers have moved it to make the point that they're trying to make. And the third option is that Jesus actually cleansed the temple twice. And that John tells us about this cleansing because it better suits his purposes for writing. And the other gospel writers tell us about the other cleansing because it better suits their purposes. So three different possibilities. It's really impossible to know which one is right. But regardless, it's pretty safe to say that Jesus, or John sorry, recounts this temple cleansing here because he wants to make a point. And the point that John wants to make is that Jesus came into conflict with the religion of his day very quickly, very early on in his ministry. 
It didn't take three years of Jesus' ministry before the Jewish temple and its religion bumped up against the new thing that Jesus was doing. No, the dust and the mess of renovation began right away. And so John tells us Jesus came into the temple. And, and when he got there, he saw all the, the business taking place in the temple courts. The, these courts were, were, was the place in the temple where the, the Gentiles, the, the non-Jewish nations, were supposed to have a sanctuary. They were supposed to have a place to pray and to learn about God. But instead of a peaceful sanctuary, these courts were abuzz with commerce, money changers, uh, animal sellers. Now, all... All of these things were needed for the temple to function. Um, pilgrims who were coming from far off countries and places needed a place to change their money because the temple tax that they were required to, be paid, to, to pay had to be paid in the local currency. They also needed to be able to buy animals for sacrifices. They couldn't necessarily take their animals from far off where they came from. They brought money, it was easier to carry, and now they needed to be able to buy animals for the sacrifice. So these merchants were actually providing important services. That wasn't the problem. The problem was that those in charge of the temple were letting this crowd out God. The, the priorities and the focus of the religious system and, and, uh, of that time were such that all the religious goods and services were drowning out God. They had lost the point. It had become all about the trappings and the merchandise of religion and the chance to make a buck in the process, so much so that connecting with God and helping others to connect with God had become secondary. And when Jesus sees this, he gets angry. So angry that he makes a whip out of cords and he cleans house. He, he drives all of this distraction literally out of the temple. And he says, stop turning my father's house into a market. And for the disciples, this brings to mind a scripture verse, Psalm 69.9. Zeal for your house will consume me. In other words, Jesus does what he does because he cares. He cares passionately for God and for God's house. I'll tell you this is a challenge to me because I wrestle with whether I'm too understanding, too patient, too accepting of all the little religious distractions which in the course of church life get in the way of what God has called us to do. How about you? Do you have zeal for God's house? Or are you comfortable with the status quo? When something secondary becomes too important and, and begins to crowd out what really matters to God, do you get angry? Do you, do you feel passion? Or do you just kind of let it slide? You know, C.S. Lewis applies this to the Christian life. After all, the New Testament tells us that, that we are God's temple, that we are God's house. And, and, and there are all those little excuses, those little distractions and, and disruptions and obstacles which stand in the way of us moving forward with God, those little excuses we hide behind for not living the life we know that God wants us to. And I've read this quote from Lewis before. He compares these little things to, to babies. He says, I know things in the inner world which are like babies, the infantile beginnings of, of small indulgences or small resentments, which one day may become alcoholism 
or settled hatred, but which woo us and, and wheedle us with special pleadings and seem so tiny, so helpless, that in resisting them, we feel we are being cruel to animals. <laughs> they begin whimpering to us, I don't ask for much, but, or I had at least hoped, or you owe yourself some consideration. Have you heard those voices? Against all such petty infants, the deers have such winning ways. The advice of the psalm is best. Lewis says, knock the little bastard's brains out. <laughs> and he's using that word in its correct dictionary sense. And he says, blessed he, blessed he who can, for it is easier said than done. Is that your attitude toward those small sins and temptations and distractions, those little things that clutter up and crowd out the things of God in your heart and your life? Do you have zeal for God's house? Well, Jesus does. Jesus has a laser focus. He has come on a mission to bring the newness, the new wine of God's kingdom. And anything that stands in the way has to go. Do you have that focus for CBC? Do you hunger for, for the new work that Jesus wants to bring here? Or are you invested in the way things are now and you really don't want to upset the apple cart? You know, over the years as a pastor, I've observed that there are some people who attend church and, and they're involved in various ministries, but they also have a life outside of church. They, um, they have hobbies, they have friends or, or families, they have activities, um, other things besides church. And, and then there are other people for whom church is their life. The church is their main source of spiritual growth. Church is their, their main support. It's their main community. It's their main pastime. And I've learned actually the hard way and the painful way that it's this second group of people who often have a harder time responding positively to the new work that Jesus may want to do. Because, you see, their whole life is built on and, and dependent on the way their church is. And, and if their church were to change, their whole life would, would be upset on so many different levels. And so they find it really hard to embrace the new wind of the Spirit when it blows. The new wine, which requires new wineskins. The, the cleansing and, and renovating work that our zealous Lord may want to do to purify God's house. Now, I'm not saying that it's bad to depend on your church or to, to love your church or to be heavily involved in your church. I'm, I'm just saying if that's your case, then watch out. Be careful. You may find it harder than others to welcome the new work, the new life that Jesus comes to bring. And you may want to ask yourself, do I love Jesus as much as I love my church? Can I separate the two out? Which one am I actually more committed to, Jesus or the church? You know, we can easily use the church to hide from Jesus. Let me quote again something that J.I. Packer says in this regard. I've quoted it before. It's from his book, Keep in Step with the Spirit. He says, churches tend to run in grooves of conventionality, and such grooves quickly turn into graves. 
Only styles and structures that serve the spirit should stand. Everything bogging us down or restraining the fruitful use of spiritual gifts should be changed no matter how sacrosanct we previously took it to be. The Holy Spirit is not a sentimentalist, as too many of us are. He is a change agent, and he comes to change human structures as well as human hearts. Change for its own sake is mere fidgeting, but change that gets rid of obstacles to God's fullest blessing is both a necessity and a mercy. Well, in today's passage, we see that Jesus is definitely not a sentimentalist. No, zeal for God's house consumes him so much so that he will eventually give his very life to see God's house renovated. But it's not because Jesus enjoys making people change who don't like to change. It's not because Jesus enjoys making people uncomfortable. No, it's because he wants to offer us new wine, choice wine. And, and he won't, he can't allow anything to block or to stifle the flow. So when change and disruption are hard, let's, let's remember to ask ourselves, is this a Jesus thing? Is this something new that Jesus is doing? Because if it is, it, it may be hard, but, but isn't the new wine better? Isn't it worth it? Don't, don't we all want what Jesus has to offer? Well, notice how those who had a stake in the temple status quo responded to Jesus. They shot back, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do this? Now, notice that they asked the wrong question. Instead of considering whether all the noise and the hubbub and the commerce in the temple really is getting in the way, of the people connecting with God, instead of considering whether Jesus is actually right, all they can think of is, who gives this guy the authority to call the shots in our temple? How dare he presume to take control of God's house? That's our job. Have you ever caught that attitude cropping up in your own heart? I know I have. Who are you? This is my church. Some of us have read the book, Who Stole My Church, right? It talks about this. How dare these new people come in and try to change my church on me? Don't they realize how many hours I've put in here? How, many, how, how much money I've given here? How much I've sacrificed over the years for this church? And Jesus says, that's pretty impressive. Thank you. But try this, I gave my own blood for this church. I, I laid down my life. I went to hell and back for this church. And the Father has given it to me. It's my church, Jesus says. And Jesus continues, I'm happy to let you in. But, but not because of any of that stuff that you've done to contribute. That, that's all great. Thank you for caring enough to contribute to my house. But all that stuff doesn't actually even qualify you to have a spot here. No, but you can have a spot here for free as my guest. And guess what? That new person who's different from you, they, 
belong just as much as you do. Because they're my guests too. Because you are both here in my church as my guest, sheerly on account of my grace. Boy, I need that reminder. I need that reality check. Because otherwise I can think I'm, so, I'm somehow entitled to have my way. But I don't ever want to look at Jesus and to find myself asking, who gives you authority to be throwing around your weight here? That wouldn't be good, would it? We want to remember that this is Jesus' church. It's Jesus' alone. And, and the only credential which gives anyone pull around here is that they are seeking to do Jesus' will. Well, look how Jesus responds to those who question his authority. They, they want a sign from him to prove his authority. And he says, fine, tear down this temple, and in three days I'll build it back up again. Now, John just loves double meanings. They, of course, hear Jesus' obvious meaning, and they respond, Jesus, you're crazy. This, this, ta this temple has built, taken 46-plus years to build, and you're going to rebuild it in three days? But Jesus, of course, was speaking on another level, a, a meaning that no one at the time could have anticipated, but which the disciples understood later. Jesus was talking about his body. When Jesus, the eternal word, the, the very son of God, comes from heaven down to earth and becomes flesh, then his body becomes the new temple. Jesus is God's new temple. Jesus himself is, is now the new place for people to meet with God, to come into God's presence. The temple in Jerusalem is on its way out. The new, greater temple has arrived. That's why soon after in John 4, Jesus will tell the woman at the well, he'll say, the time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will no longer worship in Samaria or in Jerusalem. Rather, where will they worship? They will worship in spirit and in truth. Now, where's that? Well, the, this... Um, where it's, it's basically wherever Jesus is present because Jesus is the truth, right? And when Jesus later goes away, it's his spirit whom he sends to be among his people. The physical temple is being replaced. God's people can now worship and meet with God anywhere that Jesus' spirit is present. We don't need a temple. We don't need a log cabin. We just need each other if Jesus is among us. So back to the story. When Jesus cleanses the temple, he isn't ultimately reforming it or rehabilitating it. No, he's replacing it. He himself has come to be the new temple. Now, for the people living back at Jesus' day, you can imagine... That, that this was radical. I mean, imagine that you're, you're, for your whole life, you have been meaningfully meeting with God by, by one sort of religion. And now all of a sudden, Jesus is changing it all on you. All the memories you had at the temple, all the, the, the past feasts, you have pictures of you and your family, you, 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 know, you talk about it at, a, at that Seder time, and 
all these memories and, and all this spiritual growth and, and um, encounters with God you've had at this temple. And now Jesus is pushing it out of the way and saying, now it's about me. People no longer need to go to Jerusalem to meet with God. Jesus is saying, I am God. You can worship me. You can get to know me. And when you do, you will know God. Jesus is the true bridegroom. The wedding celebration has begun. The new wine is flowing. God himself in Jesus is inviting people back into direct relationship with him. And everything that stands in the way, no matter how helpful or or reassuring it used to be, now is going to have to get out of the way. No exceptions, no compromises, no soft peddling. Nothing can stand in the way or get in the way of the new thing that God is doing. Now, I don't know about you. I want to be fierce and steadfast like Jesus is. But when it comes to the practical decisions of of church life and church direction, I'm never as sure as Jesus is that I know what God's will is. (laughs) I'm often partly sure. I I feel conviction on the one hand, but then I'm second-guessing myself on the other hand. But Jesus is dead sure. And when you hear him talk about why he's so sure in John's gospel, it's not because he's God, even though he certainly is God. But no, rather he's, he's so dead sure, he's laser focused sure because of his relationship with the Father. That's what he attributes it to. Jesus hears the Father's voice. Jesus knows the Father's will. Jesus is sure enough to bank his life on it, literally. And, and that relationship that Jesus has with his heavenly Father is the very thing that Jesus has come to give to us too. Jesus has come so that we can share in and can experience the relationship that he has with the Father. And I can tell you from my own experience, when I'm drawing close to the Father through Jesus, I'm more sure of what the Father's will is. That's why I try not to make any major decisions in my own life when I don't feel I'm close to the Father. All right, so here's the challenge from this passage. And it's a challenging passage, isn't it? Jesus has come to bring us the new wine, the choice wine, the newness of life and joy and delight that God's kingdom and presence brings. But stuff gets in the way. It blocks the way so the new wine can't flow. What is that stuff for you? What gets in the way in your own walk with God? Or what gets in the way in this church or in the small group that you attend? I'm not talking or asking you to point fingers at anyone else. (laughs) But in your life, (laughs) in your life, in my life, what gets in the way? Maybe it's a behavior that you know isn't pleasing to God. Maybe it's a habit or an attitude. Maybe it's something that you're depending on when you know you should really be depending on God instead, who wants to be your provider, your sustainer, your love. Maybe it's a control issue, something that you're not willing to give up control of, and it's got to be your way. Maybe it's a dream or a fantasy which... 
has captured your affection or your imagination. God should be your delight and your affection, but, but this thing has your heart instead. What is it? Well, whatever it is, can you, can you admit to yourself that it's blocking the flow? That it's getting in the way of Jesus? And now, can you look at Jesus? The Jesus who is fierce, who isn't afraid to make a whip and to clean house, to declare war on anything that blocks the way. But the Jesus who's also fun, who only wants to clean house and, and to take that obstacle away because he's inviting you, he's inviting us to a party. And he doesn't want anything to block the flow of the delightful new wine that he's offering. But Jesus may just need to first pick up that whip and clean house in your life. Because you are his house. This church is his house. Not the building, but the people. And Jesus is full of zeal, full of passion for his house, for his father's house. Because how else can, can the choice wine that he longs to give us, to give you and me, how else can it flow? So will you let him clean house? Will you acknowledge his authority to do so? Maybe he's already begun. Maybe you're going through something, a rough time, and, and you don't know why. Maybe not, but, but it could be that Jesus is cleaning house, clearing the way for the new flow that he wants to bring in your life. So will you welcome the good king, the rightful king, the king who is a bridegroom, who's come because he loves you, because he loves us, and he wants to give us what is good. Will you welcome him instead of opposing him? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your courage. Thank you for your conviction. Thank you for taking time, having it in your heart to stay close to the Father so you could be so sure and so secure in what God was asking you to do. Thank you that you also come to bring us goodness and joy and celebration. May you give us a sense together as a body, a sense of shared conviction and anticipation of what the new thing is that you want to do here. And help us to give one another those reminders we need that what you bring is better than anything that we fear we're going to lose. Because you are so good, Jesus. Amen. Amen.